Building Men is brought to you by Finish the Race Apparel, ftrapparel.com, the creators of all things Building Men, and by Become Stronger Industries, become-stronger.com, the creators of handmade steel maces, hammers, and other badass equipment. It's been for eight and a half hours, both Saturday and Sunday, and like three and a half hours into my shift. There's so many customers, and we have four people on the floor all day. Only five people are put on the schedule, and somebody had to call out. And there are four people running the whole store, and there's so many customers, and there's possibly scheduled five people. We only have 13 people employed at this store. <laughs> You're listening to the Building Men Podcast with Dennis and Anthony Miralda, brothers on a mission to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Welcome back to the Miralda Minute brought to you by Corona Premier. Today, I will be talking to you about sleep and why humans are the only animals that purposely deprive themselves of sleep. What the hell is wrong with us? We wear it as a badge of honor. We look at it like sleep is for the weak. I'll sleep when I'm dead. We talk about I'm I'm running off three hours of sleep like it's a good thing. And that's why 75% of the world's population is underslept and not getting the required hours of sleep necessary to function at our best. And this because sleep isn't sexy. It's not some trendy biohack. It isn't particularly cool. It isn't in some pill that we could order off Amazon and take every day. We need to purposely prioritize it. And when we don't, that's when we can see weight gain, blood sugar irregularities, increased hunger, irritability, memory loss, brain fog, hormonal imbalances, and much, much more. So simply put, the less you sleep, the less you will repair and recover both mentally and physically. So make it a priority. I'll leave you with a quote from a man named Matthew Walker. He's a neuroscientist that specialized in sleep. He said, the shorter you sleep, the shorter your life. Boom. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to the Building Men podcast. Pumped up for today's episode. I found today's guest. I'm surprised I didn't know about him before finding him on Instagram. He posted something which I then put up in a, in a story on Instagram and it was a, a kid in his late teens, early twenties, cheesy ass mustache. And he was taking like a selfie video worked in Starbucks and whimpering, crying about he he's working two days in a row, eight hour, eight and a half hour shifts. There's only four of them. And there were a lot of like, <laughs> like whimpering sounds that were coming from this video. And I was like, this is what's wrong with young men today. I, like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. So I put it up in the story on Instagram. And by doing so, I got more feedback from that one story that I reposted from our guest today than probably every other thing combined. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments about this one thing. And I was like, all right, I got to reach out and have this guy on the podcast. And he responded right away. So the guest today is he's a husband, he's a father, he's an entrepreneur, he's a podcast host. His name is Dave Hurt. What is up, my man? Yeah. What's up, brother? How are you? I'm doing really well. I really appreciate you posting that. So did you, when you saw it, did you have that same like visceral reaction that I saw when you saw that video? Absolutely, man. I it, it So I, I should say that I did find out that that was actually... And it may not really matter, but that was a trans man. So that was a a female who was, I guess, I who identified as a male or man. My nomenclature is messed up as far as all this stuff goes because I don't. It, it changes so often. But that was a female who who identified as a as a male, and so they were in the back complaining about the fact that they had to work eight hour shifts and. Uh, leaving their team hanging out to dry, which is another huge aspect to it that a lot of people sort of missed. And personally, I came from a background where nothing was given to me. I had to work for everything, blah, blah, blah. Everybody has a story, right? And I I saw this and it just tapped into that part of me that was like, oh my gosh, I have to say something about this because I feel as though it is 
representative of where things are headed. And I don't know about you, but since I've become a father and and sort of assumed my role as an older, I'm in my mid thirties now, an you know older man in society, not a young twenty something whippersnapper. I sort of start to worry more about macro issues. Uh, I think that this is sort of a natural progression. Uh, some some young men in their twenties are are wise enough to to worry about that stuff, and that's a beautiful thing to see. But now. I see things like that, and I really think about the direction society is headed in. And that's why I posted it and felt the need to make a statement about it, because young people today, especially young men, are in a crisis, a crisis of identity, a crisis of purpose, and they often find themselves wondering about where they fit in. Right. What, what is their role in the bigger picture? And I, I think a lot of it has to do with societal pressures, but also parenting. There hasn't there's an entire generation, I think, of young people who were never provided the level of guidance and discipline necessary by their parents because their parents had a, quote, tough go at it and had to scrap for everything. And they wanted to give their children a better life. And by doing so, they they enabled a lot of this narcissistic, self-centered behavior, victim mentality, stuff like that. David goes back to we have been in a society recently of the participation award parenting, participation award coaching, where you want to protect the kids' feelings on such a deep level, which I totally understand. Like, be aware of the emotional impact that what you're saying has on a kid. Hundred percent agree with that. But when we're we're valuing the trophy rather than the process that it takes to get to become the champion at whatever it is, we're doing the kids such a disservice by not letting them experience that level of of failure and then perseverance or resiliency that we need to be teaching them. And, and to your point about, okay, so it's a trans um, person, female to male that's taking the video. If you're identifying as a young man in that video, fucking sack up. Like, exactly. Like it's not <laughs> about you and that however you like, that's what it's about is not only you are working eight and a half hour shifts and you're leaving your team high and dry to go back and record a video about how, how sad you are. If you need to, you know, decompress and handle your emotions, do that after your shift is over when you don't leave your team high and dry, right? It's, it's such an important- well, Welcome to male privilege. <laughs> Absolutely agree with that. All right, so now I wanna take that opportunity to go back and unpack your childhood a little bit. You said, you know, about Ooh. what you have learned about becoming a parent, becoming a father, and what that has taught you about masculinity. So you came up it wasn't you didn't have things handed to you you didn't have things on a silver platter it wasn't like dad was there to talk you through difficult situations the audience needs to know about how you experienced your learning about masculinity without parental figures in your life so tell us a little bit about that thief yeah so well i guess first off my my parents were both 16 they were extremely young teenagers they uh were drug addicts and so I was born into tumultuous is is uh, an understatement, a tumultuous uh, situation. And I it was very abusive. We most of my youngest memories were between a trailer park and homelessness. That was sort of the, the existence. And we jumped from people's couches and my dad left and would be gone for years and then he would show up for a little bit and then be gone again. He, he was a crack addict and he traveled with the carnival. He ran like a dart booth or something. My mom was addicted to Oxycontin. Um, she was extremely physically abusive. I left home in seventh grade after she was on top of me, uh, punching me. I kicked her off of me. The police were called. They, um, let me leave. And, and then I went and, and sort of jumped from family member to family member, grandparents, aunts, uncles. So that was sort of my existence. Uh, never had a, a dad or father figure who was around. Um, and I kind of had to figure it out myself. I, it was sort of sink or swim. It was uh, in many ways at the time, obviously I didn't realize, but now in hindsight, it was, a blessing to have so much adversity to shape me into a resilient human. But I do think that we as parents can 
do that for our children without uh, neglecting them. And then on the other end of the spectrum, coddling them in helicopter parenting. So for me, it was a, a scenario where just by the grace of God, I happened to latch on to education as my way out. I think it was because I saw that nobody in my immediate family was educated. And I, I truly feel that if you grow up in a really bad situation, you either embrace it and fall in line with it or rebel heavily against it. Uh, I rebelled heavily against it. I think a lot of kids rebel against their parents. Oftentimes that is getting into bad things. But since my parents were into bad things, me rebelling against them was getting into good things. So <laughs> that's I when I try to analyze it in, in a retrospective manner, that's all I can think of. So I was like, all right, I'm going to do really well at school. It's my only way out of here. I've got to get out of here. And, and so that's what I latched on to. And then I, uh, I dealt with a lot of insecurity. I dealt with a lot. Uh, I was picked on a lot. Um, and I, again, I didn't have a strong male figure in my life to, to guide me. And so I dealt with anxiety, depression, all this stuff as, as a young man. And I discovered physical culture or weightlifting when I was like 15, just happened to, uh, and lifting weights for me was the first time in my life I felt just a hint of self-confidence. I finally, I could do something that was directly proportionate to my efforts. The return was within my control and my mom couldn't go sell it for drugs. It couldn't be taken from me. It was mine. My gains were mine. I found a way to develop as a, as a young man. And so that started to get me on the right path. And I started looking at books about weightlifters, powerlifters, bodybuilders, sort of stronger men. And that, I think, is what really sort of gave me a guiding light as I started to define, in my mind's eye, what it meant to be a man in this world. So I latched on to figures like Arnold Schwarzenegger and him moving here with nothing, overcoming adversity, building a life for himself and figures like that. So for me, it was really just sort of these cultural figures, these male figures, whether on TV or in books that I tried to learn from. And I think all young men look somewhere if they don't have it directly in their life. Social media these days, obviously YouTube, et cetera. But that was, that was basically it, man. And, and I, ended up doing well enough in school to get scholarships, went to college, went to grad school, et cetera, and started a business, sold it. And uh, here we are today, but it, it was rough, man. It was very rough growing up the way I did. I appreciate you sharing that, that story and Dave. And, and the interesting yeah. thing is my, my experience as a, as a principal in public schools was just like that. It was, I noticed that kids that were coming from a really challenging upbringing, they, they went one of two ways. They were either going to perpetuate the same things that their parents were doing, lived in a safe lifestyle, which would be you getting into drugs and, and crime and things along those lines, or in the exact opposite way. And the way that you fell into fitness, it was something that was, was a healthy habit, healthy mindset, along with the education, but it was something that was within your control. You were able to yep. dial it in saying, if I do this, this, and this, I will see this, this, and this result. So it was very like metric based in that capacity. And I have to tell you, I mean, if anyone's experiencing like low testosterone, just go stand next to Dave for three minutes. Like he's seeping <laughs> test. I mean, one of the most manly looking men I have ever seen before. As I ran the building men program, I remember talking to the kids and saying, all right, build me a man. What does he look like? You know, like let's, and you were pretty much it put you on a motorcycle with a little <laughs> leather on. That's pretty much what they were building for me is what they thought a man looked like. So whatever you were doing, you were doing it the right way. And the beard is just, uh, it's next level. Yeah, it needs you. its own yeah. Instagram page. <laughs> it's funny. People often say, because I'm a big teddy bear, I'm the nicest guy. And people are always like, wow, I didn't expect you to be so nice. <laughs> it's like, I guess I just look like I would be mean or whatever, but, but yeah, it is, it is fun. Yeah. You look like, I mean, holding an ax with a grizzly bear, just like on your, you know, you're holding grizzly, grizzly bear on the other hand, just like keeping him yeah. like, I'm not ready to chop you down yet. So you mentioned your, 
your success in school, got scholarships. You studied biochemistry, zoology, mm -hmm. and minored in genetics when you went to what it was yeah. North Carolina State. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, That's one of the schools. My son. It's a, it's a, one of his top four schools right now. Is uh is being part of the Wolf Pack. So when you went through that program, right? So it's it was one hundred percent science based. What you were into, you you were able to take that and extrapolate a lot of the things that you're learning there, not only in your physical fitness, but also in your, the, the, the gym piece of it as well. Like you were able to, to meld those two together. So take us, take us back to that point in your life. What's a lesson that you learned in college in your um, either undergraduate program or in, in your uh, postgraduate uh, education or your studies that helped you like, with your gym work or with your own personal fitness development? Yeah, that's a good question. So I, I went to NC State, as you said, studied biochem and zoology, uh, minored in genetics. And then I went on to UC Berkeley to do a PhD in integrative biology. I, I didn't finish the PhD. I left after two years because it wasn't for me. That's a whole other story, but um, a lot of things. So I, I mean, Adaptation obviously is, is a huge concept in weight training, progressive overload in the context of adaptation. So being methodical and, and systematic in your approach and not just going in by feel, but saying, okay, we did 250 last week for eight reps. Let's do 255 for eight reps this week, or let's hold it at 250 and do nine reps. So being very analytical in your approach to physical fitness is extremely beneficial. And, and I coach some guys now on nutrition and training uh, sort of selectively. I used to do a lot more of it, but my, my approach is very analytical and it's because of that background in biochem. And, and um, I, I taught comparative physiology at Berkeley. I taught toxicology. I taught a bunch of classes. I taught biochemistry for a couple of years. And so that background has really lent itself to, having that approach to training. And I love the sciences. I'm always going to be a science nerd, but I ultimately decided against finishing my PhD because I didn't like being locked away in the lab. Right. I hated that. I like people. I like talking to people. I like interesting humans having conversations. That's probably why I ended up starting a podcast, but I had to get out of that. And so I left after two years, once I decided I didn't want to be a professor and run my own research program, it was pretty pointless to get a PhD in integrative biology. So I left after two years and I got into scientific recruiting for about a decade where I was placing chemists, engineers, all sorts of technical positions with um, Fortune 500 companies, defense contractors, pharma companies, you know, all the really evil guys that right, we right. don't like these days. Uh, but it was it was a great career and it enabled me to do a lot of stuff. So that was sort of my trajectory. And the only re reason I mentioned that is you said a lot of your audience is young men. I really so I was on a fellowship. I had the National Science Foundation's Graduate Research Fellowship. It was highly coveted. I was like the only one in my class at Berkeley in my program that got it, which shocked me because I thought all these people were smarter than me when I went there. I felt like a fish out of water. Yeah. And it was a big deal for me to leave. Right. And that is an important life lesson, because sometimes when you realize something isn't for you and you decide to end it, it's not a failure. It's a it's a change. It's a pivot. And my research advisor, everyone in my life thought I was insane because I was I had my school paid for. I was getting a salary every year just to be a student. It was this ridiculous, cushy gig that I had. And uh, I gave it all up because I was like, my heart's not in it. It's not for me. And I just want to mention that because I think it's extremely important when your professional trajectory is at odds with your moral and ethical and the part of you that seeks value in the world, it's okay. Like it's totally fine. It's not failing. Right. And so that's an important lesson. I grappled with that a lot as a young adult. I appreciate that. There's a guy that I like to listen to. His name is Boyd Vardy, and he has a podcast. Doesn't update it very frequently. The podcast is called Track Your Life, and he was actually a lion tracker in South Africa on the Londolozi Safari Range. And he also wrote a book called The Lion Tracker's Guide to Life. And one thing that he talks about, Dave, is the idea of the path of not here. And the mm -hmm. path of not here, it's like you, as you're tracking 
wild animals in in the wilderness and safari you think you have everything right and it's going in the right direction and you you're you're certain this is the path that you're supposed to be on and you get to the, the spot where you think the line is going to be and it's not there and he said initially he would get frustrated at that but he recognized that's the path of not here that path that i wasn't supposed to go on is leading me closer to the path that i need to go on and you learned a lesson from that experience that catapulted you closer to where you needed to go in the future. So I need to ask the first zoologist that I've had on the podcast. I'm not sure when I will ever have another zoologist. I always thought it was zoologist, but I guess it's zoologist. So yeah, tell me something. So it's, it's basically like studying behavior, physiolo- physiology, and like social patterns of animals. Fascinating to me. I love extrapolating lessons from nature. Right. And so I, I did a presentation yesterday with a buddy. We did a presentation, an assembly program for the junior class of a high school in New Jersey. And one thing he talked about was it should be it's physically impossible for a bee to fly because of how big their wings are versus how big their body is. And they're, they're not supposed to be able to do it. But what bees did was they learned how to fly because they the way their wings, they like go like helicopters rather than flap up and down. Right. And so I love that story as a life lesson for kids. Have, can you pick out an, an, something that you learn in your studies of animals? You say like, this is a life lesson that if you know this about the, the kangaroo or the panda or whatever, that would be a life lesson to a kid. Oh man, that's a good question. I, so yeah, zoology is, um, it encompasses a lot of different areas. You mentioned a few animal behavior physiology, all of it's in a comparative context, which is really cool. So for example, you learn different physiological systems across different animal species. And so uh, you you learn oxygen uptake in an amphibian versus a fish versus a mammal versus a bird and, and how all these systems exist in different manners to get to the same end goal. And phylogeny is a large part of it. So learning sort of the lineage of different animal species and how they evolved and adapted in different environments. So I think those two things are really big macro lessons you can apply to life. So the first example in the comparative physiology context, there's more than one way to get where you're trying to go, right? You, you, if you're an amphibian, you can absorb oxygen through your skin. If you're a fish, you can absorb oxygen through your gills. If you're you and I, you can absorb oxygen through alveoli and your lungs. And they're all effective ways to achieve the same end result. And so there's a a famous quote from one of my favorite movies, Jurassic Park. And um, uh, Jeff Goldblum says, life finds a way, right? That is so true. And uh, sort of multiple parts of my life have intersected recently where, you know, I've, I've gotten involved pretty politically and speaking up against a lot of uh, sort of woke ideology to use a popular, you know, turn of phrase. But when we started to say things that I knew to be objectively untrue in a biological context, as though they were accepted wholesale, I had to speak up, right? And this is all the the gender ideology crap and everything. Uh, We're a sexually dimorphic species. And that's a concept you learn in in zoology 101. Men and women are different. Males and females are different. And and there's a chromosomal difference. There's differences on every level of the biological hierarchy within our systems. And so I started to speak up against that stuff. I got really involved in the political discourse and cultural discourse and you know, a, a popular thing that people talk about that Alex Jones always talks about is how they they turn the frogs gay. Um, and the funny, funny story is my laboratory at Berkeley was next door to the guy who did that research on the frogs and the compound that he was studying was atrazine. And it did change the sex of this uh, frog species. I believe it was leopard frogs that he was studying. And uh, like I was friends with everybody in that lab group and everything. And then, you know, a decade later, Alex Jones is talking about the frogs turning gay. And I'm like, hey, that was that dude's work. I remember him. I remember when he was doing all of that and publishing that. So and that was the basis the- of Jurassic Park, right? That's how the, the animals were able to start like mating yep. in the wild was because they simultaneously changed their gender assignment from one to another in, in yeah. the in captivity. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's just funny how I've sort of comes together. But 
Yeah, man, there's a lot of there are a lot of life lessons you can take from nature. I think the biggest one is that there's, you know, more than one way to solve a problem, more than one way to skin a cat, which is, a, you know, an awful example to picture, but it's, it's the truth. Brother. Right. I, uh, Jurassic Park, I just had a conversation about that movie last night with my daughter. Um, I forget his name, the, the actor's name, but he was Dr. Alan Grant in the movie. And mm-hmm. Ian Malcolm is Jeff Goldblum's character. And I remember him putting the drop of water on mm-hmm. the, the other scientists and it was dripping down her hand, just the, the visual impact of like, okay, there will be a different way to do it. You would think there's a million different things that could potentially happen out in nature. I love that that idea of different ways to handle a situation. And you can take that and extrapolate that idea into so many different things in your life. So there's, there's a problem. If you're a young man listening to this, if you're the parent of a young man listening to this, there's a problem in front of you. Just because, you know, the Smiths next door, the Jones down the street solved it in such and such a way, that doesn't mean that's the exact same way for you to help your child through something or for as a young man you to overcome something that's in front of you you have to be really honest with yourself and think about the situation and then know yourself like know thyself know what works best for you and then reach out to the people that are that are you know there to to help to support um yeah dave i want to go back to your conversation um you know when you were telling us about your your upbringing you didn't have that male role model in your life and you looked towards education you looked towards people that were in the powerlifting world and the physical fitness world for your your guidance and your mentorship mm. um you mentioned and you you became really uh vulnerable and uh like let us into your life a lot on one of um your instagram posts recently and you talked about you were basically um y- your father and you know th- th- you were ignoring his his attempts to reach out for for reconciliation or to reconnect with you for a long period of time um talk to us a little bit about that if you would because it was a really emotional thing that was once i saw that i was like i need to talk to this guy just because you have this level of strength and vulnerability that i just honor in other men and other human beings so if you could tell us a little bit about that story i'd appreciate it yeah absolutely so my dad as i mentioned wrapped up in drugs never there he struggled with a lot and one thing that you realize as you get older and mature as a man is what people were going through when you maybe pass judgment on them in your younger years and you weren't fully empathetic to what it's like to go up against this thing, life that punches you in the face every day. And so I can have empathy for the man and his struggles and the things he went through. He was epileptic. So that was a big struggle for him. He had grand mall seizures. So the ones where you fall out and just seize up. And it was awful to see as a kid. And the fact that he abused drugs didn't help the scenario. He would never take his meds. He would go on benders and smoke crack and all this stuff. And um, so I resented him in a big way. And later in my, and so first I'll say the last time I had seen him, he showed up at my high school graduation, didn't know he was going to be there. He showed up. He was proud and told me he was proud of me and everything. And um, that was the last time I had seen him. And that was in 2005. And he disappeared again for a while, for several years, and then started trying to reach out to me. But because he had disappeared again, I was just over it. I was like yeah. in college doing my thing, whatever. I'm I'm on to creating my life. I don't have time to talk to this guy. And I had a lot of resentment. So I ignored his calls, ignored his calls, ignored his calls. And that went on for 10 years. So from 2005 to 2015, I ignored his calls. By this time, I was working in a a corporate environment in scientific recruiting. Um, At work, I get a call and it's a hospital down in Florida. They're like, are you Dave Hurt? I'm like, yeah. They're like, you're listed as the oldest um, oldest, uh, child of, of you know, David Cartwright, who is my father. I didn't have his same last name. I was like, yeah, that's me. And so it turned out he was on life support in a hospital and he had, he had had a seizure and fallen into a canal and basically drowned. They were able to, they found him face down in the water and they were able to get him on life support, resuscitate him enough to get him on life support. But he had been deprived of oxygen for so long that his his brain was gone. There was no chance he would be anything other than a vegetable 
for the rest of his life if he were able to come off life support, period. So anyway, I had to fly down there and be the one to make the decision to take him off life support. And I stayed by his bed for days. It was, I grappled with it. I beat myself up for ignoring his calls. I had never talked to him. So high school graduation was the last time I talked to him and I had ignored his calls for a decade. And now I was faced with the decision of ending his life effectively. The man is laying there in front of me on a bed on life support. And all I wanted in that moment was to be able to have one more conversation with him. And so I cried, I, you know, prayed, I spent days at at the bedside and I knew what the decision had to be. I knew I had to pull the plug. There was no way he could ever recover. There was very small likelihood that he would be able to survive off life support. And so ultimately I pulled the plug. I watched my father fade away in front of me and I never got to have another conversation with him. And it's one of my biggest regrets. And so I talk about that openly because I want young people to realize that holding grudges is not worth it. It's really not. If if nothing else, I could have had a conversation with the man and told him how I felt. And I didn't even do that. And so I'll never be able to do that. So right now, if you had if if you had that chance to live it over again and you could say a sentence or two to your father, what would be the words you would say? I would say I get it. I understand why you did a lot of the things you did. I don't think you were as strong as you could have been, but I certainly understand and I can empathize with you as a human and here are the ways it affected me. And, um, I just wanted, wanted you to know how it impacted me and I don't resent you anymore for it. And I, I would have, I, you know, he has a grandkid now and he never got to meet her. She never got to meet him. So part of me does wish I could tell him that at least and and allow her to meet her grandfather. But at minimum, I'd just say, look, man, I understand. I get it. Life is tough. You made bad decisions. You're a human. You're imperfect. And uh, I don't hate you for it. I, I did as a kid. I It was a tough way to grow up. And you were very selfish in a lot of ways. And you disappearing out of my life for years at a time uh, was the worst thing you could have done to me. And I hope you learned from it, but that's, that's all, you know, it is what it is sort of at this point. Right. 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 I, um, well, I appreciate you, you going down that journey with us, David, that takes a lot to, to, to go back in that, in that spot in our lives. And, and to those of you listening, here's what the thing is many people at, at the end of their own, their own experience here on this planet. Right. And they have an opportunity. Somebody goes up and asks you about, you know, what do you wish you had done? And that's one of the things, I mean, people, people talk all the time about taking more risks and experiencing more things. It's those conversations that didn't happen. So if you're listening right now and you have an opportunity to have a conversation with someone that you have fallen out of favor with, or you're holding a grudge against step one is write it down. Like be honest about what those things are that you need to say, even if you can't find the nerve to say it, write it down to get it out of your head. And then step two would be to actually have the conversation with that person. It's, it's not an easy thing to do, but in life that we, as we know, like those, those things that are more challenging are the things that we actually have to lean into. Um, So again, thank you, Dave. I appreciate you taking us on that journey. I would love to hear about like a piece of advice because I love what you're talking about. I love what you stand for. If you can go back and give your, middle school, high school age self, a piece of advice, something that you've learned after the fact that at the time going through that, it would have been really powerful for you to hear when you were 14, 15, 16 years old. What's something that you needed to hear that you wish you could have heard? Building men of character, integrity, strength, compassion, and empathy through coaching, mentoring, professional development, facilitation, and motivational speaking is our mission here at Building Men to work with me. Information is in the show notes on our website at buildingmen.io, or you can send me an email at buildingmencoach at gmail.com. We are here to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Now, back to the show. Yeah, I think that one issue, and I think this is an issue that a lot of young men especially struggle with, young people in general, but 
if I could go back, I would say, listen more to yourself and less to outsiders. I, I was compelled in many ways to try and quote fit in, to try and do things that essentially were imposed on me from outside forces that went against my nature, not, not in a huge way because I've always been strong-willed, but there were certainly things I did to try and quote, be cool. And that I, that just were not in hindsight worth it. I was unhappy because of them. And, uh, and I think even as an adult, so I was at a men's retreat this past weekend where I, where I was a guest coach. And one thing I was telling the guys that I believe is our duty as men is to speak up and speak truth to power, but more importantly, just be honest. And, you know, we were talking about it in the context of politics and how I'm very outspoken on a lot of things that I, I see as detriments to society today. And a lot of guys tell me they'd love to be outspoken and they appreciate what I do, but they just can't because X, Y, or Z, you know, my friends, my family, my job, etc. And as men, we are supposed to be leaders in our community, supposed to be leaders. And part of that is speaking up, being the one willing to speak up. And so as a young man, I wish I had been more willing to push back against um, the status quo. So that's one thing that I've learned as I've aged that I wish I could go back and, and do a little more of. I would have answered the question a very similar way, Dave. And I think schools are not set up Right. To allow for things like that to happen, if you are the kid who pushes back against the status quo, you're the one that's sent down to the principal's office. You're the one that's a pain in the ass that needs to, there's going to be some level of consequence for you by speaking your mind. Exactly. One of the things that I believe that kids need to learn during the their experience in education is the idea of autonomy and assertiveness. So one, your mm -hmm. voice matters. Your voice needs to be a part of the space. And as adults, as parents, as educators, you need to lean into opportunities for your kids' voices to be a part of the space and then teach them how to be assertive, not to be a dickhead, not to be super aggressive, where I do uh, believe aggressiveness is something that we need to honor as well with young men, but the, the, the idea of being able to assert your opinion on something. And I love that you were speaking about it this past week, and, and I, I do believe that if you see something that is unjust, that silence is inadvertently endorsing whatever it is that you're saying. So Absolutely. it's it's difficult to do those things. It's difficult to stand up against the system and say, I don't believe in this. This is not, this doesn't drive with my own opinions or my own viewpoints, but that's the right thing to do. The hard thing to do in those situations is the right thing to do. So I want to fast forward a little bit in your life. You're working uh, for an organization. Part of your process, Steve, is to is to hire people. So you've you've hired mm -hmm. thousands and thousands, done a, you know thousands of interviews. I have as well in my experience as an educator and as a, as a principal, I had to, I had to interview a thousand different teachers for different positions. So to me, the, the art of the interview process is, is a really dynamic thing. And you learn so much about the person in that conversation. One thing that you talk about is one of your favorite questions to ask is about people's failures mm -hmm. and the people that answered in the bullshit way, or they're like, Oh, I just, I, I just try too hard or I, I care too much. Fuck you. Like, let, let's really roll up your sleeves and talk about what are some failures that you've had in your life? So first, talk to me about the power of that question. Like, why is that question so important to you? And then answer the question. Answer that question. Yeah. Like, tell me about a failure that you've had in your life that you've really learned from. Yeah. So the, the question is important because we all have failures. And so everyone has an answer. Truly, everyone does. And so it's easy to tease apart those who are blowing smoke up, up your ass and those who are giving you a legitimate answer. So I like it for that reason. But also, I think people who have failed a lot are... So if, if you're never willing to try, you're not going to fail as much. So if you it's inevitable that if you you're always willing to try and to push and to 
explore the boundaries of what is possible. You're, you're going to rack up failures. That's just simply a fact of life. And so to me, it, it tells me a lot about someone's history, their approach to life and their self-awareness. If you're, if you're aware of your failures and you acknowledge them and learn from them, that to me is something that I can't teach someone. That's an intangible that is very important to me in a hiring scenario, especially when I owned my own company and I was hiring my staff. So that's why I like to ask about failures because failures teach you so much more than successes. I've, I've learned way more from failing than I ever did from uh, successes. And, you know, gosh, as, as far as failures go, I mean, I, I have them every day. Um, I, I failed for a very long time to be vulnerable with my emotions to my spouse. That was a, a failure that I learned from and it took therapy and, and a lot of transparency and vulnerability on my part that was like pulling teeth as a man, you know, that's very hard to do, but that was something that I, I wish I had done earlier in our relationship. We've been together 16 years and I spent a decade keeping a lot of my emotions to myself. So that was a, a big failure that I learned from though. And, and now I, I, my relationship with my wife is so much stronger because I've been able to open up to her. And, and I realize that as men, I, a true, in my opinion, a true signifier of masculinity and being a mature man is being able to be vulnerable with your emotions to your loved ones, to be, it's important to be stoic in a lot of scenarios. I think that's a sterling attribute. But if you can also be emotionally vulnerable to your spouse and to your child and to and be open with them, I think that that is, is hugely important. And I think that those who often sling around this toxic masculinity phrase are, aren't, they see masculinity as a different thing. So I, I think that that's important. And I, I wish I had been more vulnerable emotionally earlier on in life too, but I was so guarded from the way I grew right. up. You know, I, I, I had my armor up for most of my life and all I knew was compete, 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 be the best, take no prisoners, run the score up. Cause that's how I had to live, man. Like I had to live that way. And um, so carrying that into other areas of my life has been detrimental. And I, I wish I had acknowledged that earlier on. Jordan Peterson talks about this, and he's one of my all-time idols. I love when that he, man. Oh my god! I, I, you know, he's a guy that I would, you know, give a kiss on the cheek. I just, he, he's the way that he speaks about things, and what he did, what he does is he said he's like passiveness is not a virtue. Like it's what you need to be is you need to be you need to be the monster capable of of doing damage and then keeping that under control. That's a virtuous thing. So yes. I just thought about this question as you were speaking, because it is this idea of, of the balance and it's never going to be in perfect harmony or perfect balance, but the balance of that stoicism, like having those, those masculine, like needs for aggression, needs for competition, like to, to compete, to dominate, to protect, to serve with the vulnerable piece, to be able to like, listen, I'm not okay right now. And I think like the pendulum has swung so far from one direction to the other I'm wondering, and, and neither are, are good. Like you need to be in, in, in harmony. I think a little mm -hmm. bit more on the, like, I need to, to compete, to dominate, to, to assert. I, I'm, I'm, I believe we should be a little bit more on that side of it, but what's say someone is, and I, I just want to frame this question first in my head as I, as I'm thinking about it. If you're the guy who is like, I'm the tough guy, stuff everything down. Is it better to be like that? And then like, like lean into the vulnerable piece where I feel like this, but I'm going to try to be more vulnerable and let people in and, and understand my emotions and share with loved ones. Is that easier to do? Or is it easier to be the guy who's totally in touch with his emotions, is vulnerable, can can feel into things, is comfortable with those conversations and sack up a little bit more and be a little bit tougher and a little bit more you know, masculine and manly? That's a good question. I, I only have the perspective of the former because right. that was what I lived and I have this natural inclination, as I think a lot of men do to the former. I, my belief is that it's probably easier, quote, easier. I don't, I don't think either are easy, but I think it's easier to be the closed off stoic 
hyper-competitive driven man who then learns over time through finding love and becoming a father and learning about this other side to life that gives you meaning and fulfillment later on as you step into those roles. I think that is easier and more natural. I think that is the path. That's the walk we walk as men. I think that if you are just intrinsically soft and emotional and a fucking pudding pop, you're probably going to suffer a lot more early in life. And you're not going to get to the point where you've achieved the level of security necessary to cultivate other attributes, right? So for me, being ruthless and being competitive and being the best and being valedictorian and being the best at every sport I played and lifting weights and being in the best possible shape I could and getting scholarships and getting straight A's and graduating at the top of my class in college and all this stuff like that was necessary at that point in my life. I needed to do that. And that has afforded me a level of security now where I can enjoy stepping into those more vulnerable, nurturing roles in, in my life. And my perspective is obviously biased because that's been my journey, but that's my insight. Uh, and I agree with you. And I, I appreciate that, especially the pudding pop thing. I think that's, that's brilliant, yeah. but it is possible for a young man who's listening to this podcast or he's a parent of a young man listening to this podcast. And you find yourself in that more um, vulnerable feminine dynamic as your go-to it's still possible. It's not the preferred path, but it is possible to be able to, like step into that more masculine frame in your life. And so I I need to get to the to the podcast yeah. because I I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you're doing right now with Free Mind and I've listened to several of the episodes in preparation, but it started there were several iterations of the current um realm of your podcast and so it started with the Man Card podcast. Mm-hmm. And the Man Card is something I remember going back to high school and college where if you did something super feminine or you know it didn't align with masculine attributes that you could potentially lose your man card for example like if it's you know if i'm going to take a piss and i sit down to take a piss unless i have some (laughs) kind of a neurological issue at the time or i need to stand up and take a piss you you're sitting down to take a piss you lose your man card that's something for me that's a reason to lose your man card guys that are texting lol like it's just a thing like you need it needs to be suspended for a period of time. If you're texting LOL to someone, that's yeah. just my own personal opinion. Give me, that's give funny. me a reason why someone might lose their man card. Oh man. Well, so there's actually a serious undertone to this that I just want to touch on because yeah. I think it's important. You can lose your man card. Yes. In the context you just gave, but you also gain your man card through developing as a, as a juvenile teenage and then young man, and something today that I think our society lacks is rites of passage. I think rites of passage are very important for young men. There are very few scenarios where rites of passage even exist anymore. Um, I, you know, Jewish culture is one where you have your bar mitzvah or whatever, bar mitzvah. I, I'm not Jewish, but I know it's a rite of passage where it's like, okay, you were a boy, now you're a man. Um, that, that sort of thing I think is very important for young men. And so one thing that I, hopefully, if I have sons, which we're working on it, I have a daughter right now, but hopefully we, we can have a son, is I want to make sure I structure rites of passage in his life. And I was just having a conversation with one of the men at this retreat who has a 13 and a 15 year old boy. And that's where he is. He's, he's setting up these rites of passage. So there, there are these things that they need to achieve as young men and okay, you are one step closer to being a man. I think that's important. And so the man card thing, yeah, it's a funny thing we talk about and, um, but, but there are serious undertones to it. And so, I mean, look, you can use, lose your man card for a lot of things. But f- for me, the biggest thing is not standing up for the vulnerable, not standing up for the people who, who can't protect themselves. Like as a man, you're a protector and a provider. And if I see a man, it, you see all these clips, all these video clips where something's going down. Somebody's trying to snatch a lady's purse and there's all these men standing around watching, for example, your man card's gone you got to run towards the fight. That is who we are as men. So that's a perfect example, in my opinion, of someone who gets their man card stripped away immediately. 
Absolutely. I was going more in the humorous sense, but you are yeah, yeah, 100% yeah. right in doing the right thing when no one is watching and then doing the right thing when there's 1700 people watching on whatever Instagram feed you're, you're posting about. Um, yes. I, I also, it resonates with me with the idea of the rites of passage. It was why I began doing what I was doing as a middle school principal with building men. I recognized that there was a lack of opportunities for young men to go through rites of passage. So we would inherently have incremental rites of passage as a group in sixth grade and seventh grade and eighth grade and beyond teaching kids how to tie a tie was a, was a small rite of passage teaching kids yeah. how to change a tire. That was yes. something that their fathers were not teaching them how to do. And so I had kids out in the parking lot. I shit you not changing my tire of my, of my truck. I should not have been doing this. It was not legal. I would have been fired if someone would have seen me doing this, but the kids felt this rite of passage. And then it was doing things for other people. Like what can you do in service mm. of others? It was about mm -hmm. perseverance. Think about a task that was in front of us and we would do incremental things where they were ready to give up. And there's the lesson. It's like, get to that point, you're ready to give up and then go one step further than you thought you could go is a yes. lesson in, in and of itself. So that really speaks to me um, about providing opportunities for young men, especially in that middle and high school age range to find rites of passage. Um, love it, Dave. I, I appreciate that. So talk to us a little bit about the, the Free Mind podcast, what it is, yeah. and then where we can find you. Yeah, absolutely, brother. So I started the podcast two years ago. Um, so I mentioned I had a business I that I sold. I While I was in scientific recruiting, because I am never satisfied just doing one thing and I'm kind of crazy, I started this business on the side with a partner. I uh, grew a, ch a, a chain of restaurants in multiple states and ended up selling that into private equity and um, left the corporate recruiting gig. So at that stage in my life, I was kind of a bit rudderless. And I talk about this a lot. I was I had worked for so long, I think because I grew up so poor, just to make a certain amount of money. That's all I cared about. And then when I got there, I was empty. And so that's a life lesson as well. You, I, in my opinion, creating value for others, and this is uh, tipping the hat to your mention on, on service, I, I, that's so important and so much more fulfilling than just chasing a dollar. So I spent a large part of my life doing that. And I built a company, sold it, experienced that quote success. And I was largely empty. It was the most depressed I had ever been. Even after the childhood I had and everything, I was sort of purposeless and depressed. And so I started looking at ways I could create value for others. I started coaching people on their nutrition and their training just for free. I did it for two years because I could. And it was so fulfilling, man. It was just this amazing thing where I could have a, a dad find his mojo again because he dropped 40 pounds and now he could keep up with his kids. And now his wife desired him again and all this stuff, man. It's just so amazing doing that. And so I coached people for a while. I was putting out a lot of fitness content on social media. Pandemic hit. All right. I, I'm getting to the podcast. I promise. The pandemic hits. And I'm putting out all this fit fitness content here at the office gym, which is my gym here where the studio is upstairs. And I'm not wearing a mask. We're in South Carolina. We're still free, right? We, uh, we're not controlled by the communist North. So people are DMing me like, why aren't you wearing a mask? This is like March, 2020, the height of the hysteria, right? right? Yeah. Ap April, March, 2020. Why aren't you wearing a mask? Why aren't you wearing a mask? Oh my God, wear a mask. You're crazy. And so instead of replying to all these DMs, I put out a video where I talk about the lack of efficacy of cloth and surgical masks in a community in a community setting at stopping the spread of respiratory viruses, because this is something I have a lot of experience and background in. I was citing papers. I was talking very uh, scientifically about it, thinking that I'm doing a service to people, helping them because they're frightened, they're scared, they don't know what's going on. I'm like, look, guys, here's the deal. XYZ. I put that out. I think I'm doing a great service. And then boom, people, it was my first experience of quote, cancel culture. People unfollowed me. They blocked me, unfriended me, family members, but like I still have family members who won't talk to me. Uh, lost clients who I was coaching for free, by the way. Right. <laughs> they fired me. Right. Uh, just all this stuff happened because I put out this video and it was mind blowing. It caught me completely off guard. I thought I was doing a great thing for people. And so I put up this post on my Facebook, just 
randomly where I was holding up a sign and it was sort of a Hail Mary pass that I was throwing, hoping that some of my clients, family and friends who had excommunicated me from their lives would see it. And it said, we can disagree and still be friends, right? That was, I was like, look, guys, we, we're mature adults here. You might not agree with me on all this science that, by the way, I have a background in, I'm a published right. scientist, but anyway, that's besides the point. <laughs> Uh, that's fine. I'll still be your friend. And that went viral, like millions and millions of shares. I had never gone viral before. It was a weird experience. I have talked about this before, but it's, it's a picture of me holding a sign, but it was no longer mine, right? Because it just went everywhere. It became part of the zeitgeist. It's a surreal feeling. So anyway, I go viral and I'm like, all right, anytime I want to put a message out there. I'll put it on a piece of cardboard and hold it up because apparently that works. And it also showed me that this message of we can disagree and still be friends. We can be mature adults about this stuff. It doesn't have to be as divided as maybe the media or whoever wants us to think it is. This resonated with people, obviously, because so many people shared it. Okay. So that happened. I, I'm all of a sudden thrust into this culture war now, all of a sudden, because I had had this viral post. And so I started to connect with different people and I got asked onto a podcast to talk about masculinity and hit it off. And so we decided to do our own podcast after that. That's where the man card podcast was born. And I had a co-host for a time. I, I told you before we started recording, but unfortunately he had investors in another business who didn't like how controversial quote I was because I talked about real science and so they told him that he couldn't do the podcast with me any longer. And after that, I was sort of on my own. The name of the show changed to The Mind of Man and then eventually Free Mind because I had so many women reaching out to me right. and wanted to be guests on the show and women who had been listeners and everything. And I'm like, you know what? I just want to talk to men and women, interesting people, interesting conversations, tough conversations, keep an open mind. And that's where free mind came from. And so now I'm talking to all kinds of people, man, pro athletes, entrepreneurs, CEOs, politicians. I've had a lot of congressional candidates on. It's crazy, but it's been a fun ride. And so that sort of brings us to where we are today. Absolutely tremendous. I love the journey that you went on. And I love that you were responding to just some shit in your life by yeah. doing something totally authentic. Like, hey, listen, like I'm just... I'm just trying to throw something out there that could help you. And that was the thing that went viral. People are, are chasing the, the virality of, of mm. things that they're putting up on social media. And the, the reason why it worked was because it was you, it was who you are and you were living that authentic life, which it seems like you've been doing since as far as back as you can remember. The, the last question that I, that I asked Dave to all the guests is, if someone is listening to this podcast, they've got a tremendous amount of value from our conversation already. This has been one of my favorite conversations. I've learned a lot. And listen, a, a zoologist on podcast. I mean, that is like, for me, it was, it's totally tremendous. <laughs> someone that's listening right now, they press pause. And there's one thing that they can do right now that by doing this one thing, it can totally change the trajectory of their life. This one thing that can, they can do. What's that one thing? Well, I guarantee you, if you're listening right now, there is a difficult conversation that you know you need to have with someone that you've been putting off, or there is a thing you've been doing or a person in your life that you know you need to dissociate from, all right? So one of whether it's a difficult conversation, and it can, it can be all of the above, right? Cutting a person out of your life or deciding to stop doing something that you've been doing just to make others happy. If I could give you any advice, it's do that. Have that difficult conversation, cut that loser out of your life, or change course and do that thing that you know you want to do, you've been telling yourself you want to do, and you've been too fucking scared to do it. Love that answer. To the Building Men audience, check out Dave Hurt. Where, we, where can we find you? We check you out on Instagram. I am Dave Hurt. Yeah. Yeah. I'm everywhere, man. I'm on all the socials. It gets a little overwhelming, but I try to keep up with it. I am Dave Hurt on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. 
Uh, if you just Google my name, you'll find all of that stuff. I'm on Facebook, Dave Hurt. Uh, the show is Free Mind with Dave Hurt on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere that's found. Uh, I have a small apparel company that's just t-shirts that are inspired by messages on the podcast that sort of was created out of demand, like the sovereign t-shirt I'm wearing now. That's justworkco.com if you want to pick up any of our shirts. Otherwise, I uh, would just love to hear from you. I'm always interested in having conversations with people, if, especially if you're a young person trying to navigate this crazy yep. world. If I could ever impart any wisdom, it would be an honor to do so. And, and uh, I appreciate you having me, man. It was a blast, man. Love to do it again sometime in the future. For the Building Men audience, go one step further than you thought you could go. We'll see you next time on Building Men. Building Men.